so there's a show on ESPN, ESPN College Game Day. And they go around the country to the biggest college football games of the weekend, and they shoot the show on location, right? And, um, and so they're shooting the show on location, and all these college kids will be behind them, and they'll hold up signs. And the signs are always really funny. It's like, you know, sort of celebrating their team or their coach or their city, and then mocking the other team's coach or city. And, like, it's re- really, really funny. A couple of weeks ago uh, in September... College game day was in the state of Iowa for the Iowa-Iowa State game. And this kid, college student named Carson King, uh, holds up a sign. And on his sign, it said, Bush Light Supply Needs Replenish, Venmo at, and he had his Venmo thing, right? And, uh, and so basically that was his sign. Like this college kid needed more beer, I guess. And so he holds up a sign. Within 30 minutes, the kid got $400 sent to him on Venmo. Uh, by the end of the day, he had over $1,000 Venmoed to him. And so it's a great kid, apparently stand-up kid, and he goes on to social media and says, that's really generous. I'm going to just take, I'm going to buy one case of Bush Light with this money, and I'm going to donate the rest to the Iowa Children's Hospital. He was an Iowa State fan, but he says, I'm going to donate the rest to the Iowa uh, Children's Hospital, which overlooks the Iowa, uh, the Iowa Hawkeye Stadium, right? So then the, the craziness ensues. People begin to send this kid money like crazy to the point that a month later, he writes a check to the Iowa Children's Hospital for $3,004,000. That's not even the funny part of his story to me. The funny part of his story is what happened to this kid. Like, I don't know if you've heard of his story. When it first happens, everybody thinks he's hilarious. And then the money starts coming in, and they think he's a saint. Everybody, man, this kid is so generous. What a saint. He's got a sense of humor and a saint. Great guy. And then the next thing that happens, because we live in the world we live in, is like people go to social media and start killing this kid. Who does this kid think he is? Like taking this money and donating it to a children's hospital. He told him he wanted it for beer. He should have bought beer with it. Or who does he think he is? Like he needs to send that money back. And if people want to give it to the children's hospital, they can. But if they don't, they should be allowed to do what they want to with their money. And like it got really, really ugly on social media for a minute. And I don't know that the thing has been resolved, but the kid actually wrote the whole check for $3 million. Uh, It's amazing to me that we live in a culture where people say, I would rather you spend $3 million on beer than $3 million on giving it to a children's hospital or just refund it. Uh, How dare a college kid use Bush Light money to cure cancer uh, was kind of the the big takeaway that I had from the the whole thing. Nobody gave this guy the benefit of the doubt. Nobody gave this guy the benefit of the doubt. Like, I think people wondered, would he really give the money? Would he keep it? Would he buy more of it? He said he bought one case of beer and then gave $3 million away. And no, there were so many accusations. So many accusations. That's the world we live in right now. It's like somebody does something good and no one gives them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, you just did that so that people would think you were great. Oh, you're so evil. Oh, this, you know, no one gets the benefit of the doubt whatsoever anymore. And that's our culture. And so as we begin to head into the holidays, know that the spirit of the era we live in is this. We don't give one another benefit of a doubt in culture. And we even don't do it in family. My mom called me the other day. My mom had cataract surgery this week and she's doing really great. But she caught me at the wrong time. And 
like I'm on the phone with her and I don't know if it's ever been, it's probably not ever been like this for you. It's like this for me. Like I'm talking to her and sounding nice, but I'm frustrated. Like how dare she call me when I'm trying to talk to my kids and watch TV and multitask. Like I can't do three things at once. Why is she on the phone? Not giving my own mother, my 70 something year old mother, the benefit of the doubt. This is the world we live in. But my mom's the total opposite. I don't know if you guys are like this. Maybe, I'm sure you probably are more than me. We can be in traffic. I'm riding with my mom, and she's driving. uh, And we get cut off, and I lose my mind. How many of you lose your mind when you get cut off in traffic? Good, thanks. Thank you, Marcy. I saw it, sort of. It's good. My mom, I'll say, can you believe that guy? I'm getting so mad. My mom goes, who knows what kind of day they're having? Maybe they just got fired from their job. Maybe uh, their kids are sick at school and they've got to be hurrying to the school. And I'm like, why are you giving them the benefit of the doubt? Maybe they're just a jerk who cut us off in traffic and we need to go up beside them and honk and like wave our fist or do the Boston. I'd never seen this till I moved here, but this like you take your hands off the wheel and you shake your hands like this. Like that is the world we live in right now. We don't give people the benefit of the doubt, but my mom is right. Uh, we don't know other people's stories. And I assume sometimes I do know someone's story. We don't know their story. We don't know the day that people are having. We don't know the intentions of people. And we don't know people's struggles, even the people closest to us. Even the people closest to us. I was talking with a friend the other day. He was talking about how he had a broken relationship with his dad all his life. Oh, by the way, the lights in here are motion censored. So nothing's (laughs) moving down there. They're going to go off. And he was talking about his, this guy was talking about his broken relationship with his father and, uh, and how then he began to understand all that his dad had been through. And he was like, you know what? I just want to leave it a little bit better after me for my kids than my dad left it for me. And he said, in hindsight, I realized that my dad actually left it better for me than his dad left it for him. Man, even the people closest to us, we don't know their story. We don't know their intentions. We don't know the day they're having or their struggles a lot of times. And um, sometimes, maybe I have a slide for this one, Carson. Sometimes the people we know best, we cut the least slack. Are you like that? Sometimes the people we know best, we cut the least slack. We give them the least grace. But knowing someone does not equal knowing what's going on in their life. Just because I know you doesn't mean I know what's going on in your life. And we're, I'm very quick to forget that in time. So we get into this situation where it's this. Knowing someone and not knowing the details of their situation plus just a little bit of pride will create this Molotov cocktail of carnage and destruction. If we know someone, but we don't know the details of our life, and we've got just this little bit of like pride and entitlement spiritually that sort of roots up into us, there can become this destruction and these explosions and everything else. The story of the gospel, that God loves us when we were sinners and sent his son to die for us so we can have relationship with God, reminds us, it calls us to give other people the benefit of the doubt, to give people the benefit of the doubt, that we don't know everything about their life, and we can still love them even when we're inconvenient. So, if you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, maybe you're like the critics of Carson King, maybe you're like my mom, who's much more gracious, 
Maybe you're somewhere in between. But I think as we roll into the holidays, we need to hear what God would say to us about giving the benefit of the doubt. And at a church, we certainly won't survive if we can't give the benefit of the doubt. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read the whole thing because I love it. And I've never heard it read in church probably in its entirety, only in weddings. So this is not actually speaking about weddings or romance or marriage. It's actually in the context of Paul writing to the crazy Church of Corinth, one of my favorite churches of all time. If you have never heard the story of the Church of Corinth, the Church of Corinth had several issues. One, this is the church where the rich people were coming to church early and getting drunk on the communion wine uh, and drinking up all the communion wine. And then the poor people were getting there and the rich people were hammered and, uh, and wondering why the, the poor people were wondering why they had been left out. This is also the church where a guy was sleeping with his stepmom. Uh, and this is also a church where everybody was fighting about who is their best pastor of all time, literally almost to the point of fist fighting, right? And so Paul is writing them to correct all of these things and many more. And in chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. They're fighting about who has what gifts, like, oh, I have the gift of giving, or oh, I have the gift of being able to understand the Bible, or I have the gift of service. And they're literally fighting about it. And Paul is writing them to talk about the spiritual gifts. And in 13... He says, now I'm going to tell you about the most important gift that exists in the church. And here we go, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, at the end of 12, and I will show you a still more excellent way or the best gift. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at the wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Verse 7, this is the one we're going to focus on today. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. These are the gifts that they're fighting over. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the mature comes, the ripe comes. The the immature and the unripened will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known, implied be known by God. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I've always heard that at weddings. And when you hear at weddings, and you're standing there watching a bride and a groom in a tuxedo and a dress, I'm we tend to hear that and think romantic love, husband and wife love. But the word there, there's three New Testament words for uh, love, three Greek words. Uh, some of you have heard this before. The first one is the word eros. It just means like sexual love, romantic love. Uh, the second one is phileo, brotherly love. The love that I feel for Jamie because we're friends, we hang out. Like we went to uh, have food the other day at Brewer's Fort. Can't remember what I ate now. We had food. And, uh, and we just enjoyed talking. We have similar interests. I phileo 
Jamie, brotherly love. It's where we get the city Philadelphia, where Ben Franklin, when he had a falling out with his brother from Boston, relocated to Philadelphia, because that's where you go when you have a falling out with your brother, is to the city of brotherly love. And so there's eros, then there's phileo, and then here's this word. And the Christians coined this word. This word's agape. Every time you see love here, it's the word agape. And agape is a totally different love. It's not romantic. It's not brotherly. Agape is the way that God loves us. The best way that I use agape when I'm reading the Bible and and see this word is cross love. Agape is cross love. It's the love of the cross. It's a love that says you don't deserve it. I don't even necessarily know you. I might not like you at all right now, but I'm going to choose to lay down my life for you. That's cross love. That's agape. So Paul says in verse 7, agape bears all things. Agape, the love of the cross, believes all things. The love of Jesus hopes all things. The, the love of Christ endures all things. This is cross love. And Jesus is the greatest example in history of it. When we see the word love in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. When we see the word love, usually the word, not always, usually the word is agape. It's this idea of laying down our life God laying down his life to love us or us laying down our lives in love, the self-sacrificing love for another. And so let's look at these four phrases. Love, agape, bears all things. Agape bears all things. It protects. That word means to protect or to endure. Love endures all things. Or the best, the absolute best translation of this word is love covers all things. Love puts a veil over all things with one another. That's not the world we live in right now because we don't give the benefit of the doubt. We like to rip the veil away and assume what someone is intending in a situation, right? But love throws a veil over. It bears with offenses. It holds up under the strain of difficulties. Even, Jesus says, with love for enemies. Jesus has called us to have a covering love even for our enemies, people we barely know. It's a covering. In other words, it doesn't, Love does not expose the sins of others publicly. This is revolutionary. Love doesn't expose the sins of others. If Renee is, if I'm, if I, as Renee's friend and brother in Christ and his pastor, know that he's struggling in sin, I don't stand up on a Sunday and say, "Hey, let me tell you about Renee and what he did." Right? And I don't even like standing there with Carson, look over at Renee, man. Let me tell you what Renee did this week. Rather, the opposite is true. I try to cover that publicly and be gracious to him and go to him privately and say, hey man, it looks like you're struggling. I love you. What can I do to help you right now? Because I know that this is not who you are, who we are as Christians. Uh, We want to cover and we don't expose the sins of others because we don't want to bring shame. We don't want to shame someone. Bearing in love is protecting the other person in love Uh, And this is important as Christians. It's also protecting the integrity of the gospel. If you saw me over at the offering basket over there after church and I'm taking cash out, to cover that is not loving. (laughs) That would be funny, wouldn't it? (laughs) That's not loving. Because actually, that's unloving. Because you're... That would be, if you just ignored that, you would be undermining the integrity of the gospel. And so to love and bearing all things is to uh, not expose someone's sin, 
to try to protect their integrity and also to, to try to protect the integrity of the gospel. It's not enabling sin. Cross love doesn't wink at sin. Cross love doesn't excuse sin. Cross love doesn't defend or minimize or enable sin. It's, uh, cross love covers the other person and it covers our heart from resentment. Has somebody ever sinned against you, offended you, and you just feel that resentment boiling up? And it's like your, your temples get hot and your insides are on fire? Cross, <laughs> cross love puts a covering over that to try to put that fire out in grace because we don't always know the intentions of someone else. The second thing love does, it believes all things. Agape believes all things. It's not gullible, but it's hopeful, believing in another. Cross love doesn't demand trust when trust is lost. Cross love doesn't demand trust when trust is lost. Has someone ever violated your trust and they lost the benefit of the doubt? Cross love uh, doesn't give the benefit when there is doubt. It has to be smart, but it also has to believe we had a woman, a really dear friend, in a previous church, and she was cheating on her husband. And uh, she got pregnant with another man's baby. It's one of the craziest ministry moments I've ever had in 20-something years of ministry. So she gets pregnant with another man's baby, and she comes back to her husband and, will you take me back? And I remember the night, I can tell you the night, I can tell you probably the date, nine years later, they knock on our door, unexpected, and they come in and they start crying and they're telling us this scenario, she's pregnant with another man's baby and she wants him to take her back. And he says, Pastor, what should I do? And to be totally honest, there are a thousand things I mishandled about that situation uh, because I'd never been in that situation before and I wanted to believe that love could fix anything and cross love could fix anything. Um, but the problem became as they began to move forward towards her delivering the baby, he would say, she would say, you've just got to trust me. You've got to trust me. You've got to let this go. You've got to quit doubting me. You've got to give me the benefit of the doubt. She had lost trust. See, we don't, when the Bible calls us to believe all things, when there, we don't give the benefit when there is doubt. And it comes to find out later, she was still cheating on him and uh, ended up taking him to the cleaners financially. It's one of the saddest situations I've ever seen in ministry. When we believe someone, when love believes, it's not gullible, but it's hopeful. Whenever it's possible, we trust, that we trust others' good intentions. And sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's not possible, and we've got to be discerning. God doesn't call us to check our brains at the door so we would love people. Paul goes on, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Hopes, uh, we've all been failed and let down. Hope keeps us from giving up on another person. This hope encourages uh, one another to mo keep moving forward. There have been so many people in my life who saw me fail and sin over and over and over. And rather than say, why are you so stupid? Why can't you get it together? When are you going to quit swearing? When are you going to quit being impatient? When are you going to quit this or that? When are you going to quit all this? You guys, sometimes like I'll share my sins. If you know me, you know that like when I get behind the wheel of a car, like I turn into a monster. <laughs> I do sometimes. And, and yet, not one of you has ever come up to me after church and said, why are you still struggling with that? 
What's your problem? You hope for me, and I hope for you, because that's what cross love does. Cross love hopes and keeps us from giving up. And this hope helps us keep going. This hope isn't based on the Christian, but on Christ. See, my hope in you is not based on you. And it's not based on me. It's based on Jesus. And the fact that Philippians 1.6 says, we can be confident of this, that whatever God has started in us, he will carry to completion. And so as Christians, we can hope in one another because we have hope in Christ and his promise to keep on. This is not in the notes, which is always dangerous. Our Christian lives and our life just does this emotionally, you know? And we can get so discouraged when we get here. Have you ever been here? Maybe you're here right now. And we think, man, I don't love the Lord. Surely I don't love God. Why am I here? This is life. And it can't always be unicorns and rainbows following Jesus. Like, some days it's just hard. Some days we sin. Some days I pray and it's like it's not getting past the ceiling. Some days the thing I want to do, I don't do. And we need one another and we need hope to remind us that in Christ, because of Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. When we get here, as long as the trajectory tends to go this way, there's going to be ebbs and flows. You are different than you were a year ago. Those of you who have been coming a year, I look at you and I say, man, we're stronger church than we were a year ago. We've had people move in the last year, but we're stronger. You know one another better than you knew one another a year ago. Some of you have done things this year in your faith, but if I would have told you a year ago you would do, you would have laughed at me. Some of you have told me, man, I invited a friend to church last week. And some of you have even said it about yourself. You're like, I can't believe I did that. Where did that come from? That's amazing. Listen, life is, life's mountains and valleys. But hope reminds us that even in this, we are marching toward the kingdom of Jesus and becoming more like Jesus and knowing Jesus in the process, knowing him more. And hope allows us to do that. Christ picks us up. He helps us stand. Christ will finish his work. And then finally, uh, as far as the passage goes, and we're going to flesh it out really specifically in a second. Love endures. Cross love endures. Cross love carries on like a stout-hearted soldier um, in a you are dead to me society. Have you ever had somebody say, you are dead to me? Has, I've had that happen a few times. We have a couple of family members who are you are dead to me family members. Uh, they've said, you are dead to me, and we did not talk for a couple of years. In a you are dead to me, I'm going to block you on social media. I'm going to pretend like I didn't see you when I drive past you in Charlestown, right? In that world, enduring allows us to carry on like a start, a stout-hearted soldier. I haven't seen the Walk the Line movie about Johnny and June Cash, but I just finished, yeah, I know you do. I just finished a really great biography by Greg Laurie about Johnny Cash, and it's amazing to me how this man... Uh, from his early 20s until late in his life, struggled on and off with uh, pills and drug abuse. Even as a Christian, he got really serious about his Christian walk in the mid-60s. And even beyond that, for the next 40 years, he would be on and off in his uh, addiction to pills. And his wife, who was also a Christian, loved him through it. And that's what cross-love does. It endures all things 
carrying on. There had to have been times for her where she was like, is he ever going to get it? I thought he was a Christian. I thought he loved me. I thought he loved our kids. How can you have millions of dollars and be one of the most successful uh, pop or country music icons of all time and still be struggling with this? How can you, Johnny Cash, say you're a Christian, still be popping pills and ignoring our family? And yet she stayed in their marriage all the way to the end. To me, that's an incredible story of that idea of love enduring all things. In our sinfulness, we tend to say things or believe things like, she will never change. He will never be different. This neighborhood, Charlestown, will never change. These people won't change. They can't believe in God. It can't be done. Uh, In our sinfulness, we walk away. We give up on people to protect ourselves. Uh, We criticize. We pile on. We lash out. We disconnect. We believe the worst. Uh, So often our pride or our self-protection, not going to let you hurt me or I'm better than you hurting me. But the gospel doesn't give us that freedom. We have to humble ourselves and repent of that attitude. The gospel says that the Lord knows us. He knows our actions, and he knows our heart, and he knows our track record, and yet he still gives us the benefit of the doubt. Man, there's been so many times I was like, God, I repent of this, knowing that I really wasn't repenting. I was still going to go back to it. I wasn't really repenting. I felt bad. I felt guilty, but I wasn't at the point of changing and letting God change my life. And the gospel is that point where God says, I know you're like that. I love you anyhow. I died for the sins you've already committed, the sins you're going to commit, and the sins you're committing right now that you're telling yourself you're not going to, but you are. The gospel is God loving us even when we don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. I love Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant. There's a guy who's got a debt of of a few dollars, and he basically... He comes up upon this guy after having just been forgiven a debt of millions of dollars. And this really nice man who he's indebted to says, I'm going to cancel your debt. He walks out of that meeting, having been freed from millions of dollars of debt, and strangles a guy over a few dollars debt. And the owner, the master comes back and says, "Ah, I'm going to put you in debtor's prison. You clearly didn't learn the lesson here throws him in debtors uh, in a debtor's prison and Jesus says this is how it is with God God has forgiven us this spiritual debt of millions of dollars who would we be to not give somebody else the benefit of the doubt with who the Lord is as much as he knows our actions our words and our hearts so practically let me give us just 10 quick like what this looks like one uh, practically recognize how much you've been forgiven at the cross and at what cost When it comes to giving people the benefit of a doubt, you're sitting there at the Thanksgiving table and the rolls are on point this year and your cousin takes the last roll right as you are going to reach for it and you say, I hate that woman. I hate her. She did that to me on purpose. She did that because when we were kids, I pushed her down that one Thanksgiving and she is trying to get back at me for taking this roll. And if I weren't looking, she'd snatch money out of my purse as well. Like, giving the benefit of the doubt practically is recognizing how much we've been forgiven and at what cost. So when that role gets taken, we can say, whew, man, look at how much more I've taken from God. And yet he loves me anyhow and has laid down his life for me. Practically, number two, and I hear the Frozen theme song, or that song from Frozen in my head. Number two, let it go. 
as best you can when, when you want to not give the benefit of the doubt, let it go. When it's possible, if it's excusable, respond with grace. I set the fire alarm off this week in our house. Um, Natalie was gone for the week. I was playing uh, Mr. Mom, and I was cooking grilled cheese, and the pan got a little hot. I didn't have the vent on high enough. The windows were closed, and the fire alarm starts going off. I'm panicking. I'm doing that thing where you just find the, like a jacket and you're trying to fan it. I'm trying to get the grilled cheese. Like, it's a mess. I can't tell you how many times Natalie has set a fire alarm off in the last 10 years of our, 15 years of our marriage. Uh, and I would get so mad. And so I called her. I had to do some humble pie. Because I'm always like, Tracy, you're looking at me. I'll explain why. I'm like, turn the vent on. If you're cooking and there could be smoke, turn the vent on. And so she usually does and it goes off. This week, I got a dose of uh, my own medicine. And I called her. I said, I set the alarm off. She died laughing. She was like, oh, it's so fantastic. I wish I could have been there to have seen that. And she's telling my mom. She's telling everybody she knows about me setting the thing off. From now on, I need to be more merciful with that. Now that I understand exactly why the stupid fire alarm went off. When it's possible, if it's excusable, we respond with grace. And there are times in my life where I'm not gracious and need to be more like Jesus. If it's possible, let it go. Three, be gentle in your words. Be gen- choose gentleness in your words. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control as you walk with Jesus longer and know him more we ought to be becoming increasingly gentle so I don't have to say be gentle as if gentleness is something out here that we need to grab as you walk with Jesus and know him more gentleness will begin to well up from inside you and flow out let let the gentleness of Jesus flow out of you when it comes to giving the benefit of the doubt. Number four, choose to forgive, not accept apologies. Conversely, ask forgiveness, don't just say I'm sorry. This is like premarital counseling 101. Uh, I tell every couple this and they're like, well, that sounds stupid. Why can't I just say I'm sorry? Because I'm sorry never cancels a debt. If I offend Barb, And I go and I say, Barb, I'm sorry. I'm not giving Barb the moment to release me from that emotional debt. And then because I'm not doing that, I don't know if we're actually resolved. So if I offend Barb, the right and the Christian thing to do, I believe, is to go to Barb and say, Barb, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And then she can choose to say, yes, I do forgive you. Or... She can say, not yet, let me get back with you. As a Christian, what she cannot do and what we cannot do is say, no. Sometimes there's a process that we need to work through. But followers of Jesus, we've been forgiven so much, we have to work toward forgiveness. So when it comes to giving the benefit of the doubt, we're not looking for apologies and we're not offering apologies. We're asking and receiving forgiveness. And this is a discipline that needs to happen in our relationships. I I hate fake apologies. I hate it when you see it in the news. Well, I'm sorry if you got offended. What is that? Like, you know what I mean? You're You're not even sorry for what you did. You're sorry for how I responded 
to what you did. We need to, as Christians, uh, choose to forgive, not accept apologies, ask forgiveness, not just say, I'm sorry. I made a face at Noah a month or two ago. I think I even shared this on a Sunday morning. I made a face at my son, and I knew I was wrong in that moment, as soon as it happened. And I went to him and said, Noah, I was wrong when I made that face at you. Will you forgive me? And he said, yeah. And now, if he ends up in counseling as a 40-year-old man, it won't be because of that incident. That slate is clean in that moment, right? So choose to forgive, not accept apologies. Ask forgiveness, not just I'm sorry. Five, beware of triangulating, especially at the, hosp- uh, especially at the holidays. If there's an issue between Annie and I, I need to go to Annie privately and say, Annie, here's an issue, right? What I don't do is go to Mark and say, Mark, Annie really made me mad when she did whatever, right? We do this with family big time, especially in-laws, big time with in-laws and family. We don't bring third parties into our conflicts. That's a way of saying, oh, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt, but I'm actually not giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm crushing you behind your back with someone else. We address it in private with no third parties. Natalie and I have one go-to. So I can criticize Natalie to my brother. She can criticize me. She actually gets two. To her girlfriend, Gina, and to her sister, Nicole. So I've never walked into a Sunday service and thought, now I wonder who my wife has talked bad about me to in this room. It's never happened. There's never a family meal where I have to sit down and wonder what my mother-in-law thinks of me. Natalie won't talk negatively about me with her mom. That is a liberating thing. We don't ever have to walk into my mom's house. My mom would defend her over me all day long. But we never have to, I never have to walk in to, with my, she never has to walk in with my mom and wonder, have I been talking about her? We don't triangulate. We have one person that we go to when there's an issue and that's it. Number six, refuse to gossip or to listen to gossip. Gossip, uh, if you can't answer, is it true, necessary, or beneficial? If one of those is a no, then you just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. It's not necessary, true, or beneficial. So we don't listen to gossip when it comes to giving the benefit of the doubt and we don't uh, gossip. Rather, we actually stand up for people. We say, I can't, that doesn't seem like him. That doesn't seem like something she would do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose not to believe that. I'm kind of a work in progress myself. So if they did that, that really stinks, but I could do that too. That, in our culture, will end a lot of these amping things up. It kills a lot of that. Say, that must be tough. And you want to make it really awkward? Somebody comes to you trying to crush somebody and say, man, that's got to be tough, Carson. Let's pray. Let's pray right now for him. Let's just, you and I, hold hands right here. Let's get on the knee and let's pray that that works out. That will stop a lot of gossip. That is a total conversation in there, uh, 100%. Next one, take captive thoughts thinking the worst. Take captive your thoughts thinking the worst about another person. Choose not to believe it. There's some things that we just cannot let dwell in our mind. Next one, with text, be aware of the tendency to read text angry and more sarcastic than they were typed out. That's human nature. If you text me, my, the way we read text and the way we send text is two different tones. We always read them angry and more sarcastic than they were ever intended to be. It's just how our brains work. So we've got to beware of that when it comes to texting. In fact, face-to-face is the best way to do conflict in all communication. 
over the phone is next best. Over a handwritten note is the third best. And then the lowest form of all communication on planet Earth is a text. It is the, like anything emotional, like conflict, anything, it is the lowest way to do uh, conflict. So be aware of that next. At a throwaway society, we don't run and walk away. There will come a day where you can walk away from this church. You'll say, I don't like that Barb serves communion the way she does. I don't like that we use that translation of the Bible. I don't like that we sang that one song on a Sunday morning. I'm going to another church. The problem is, whatever is causing you to walk away, you will have to deal with that next place. There is no perfect church. And the moment you get there, you're going to ruin it if it is perfect. Like, because you're not perfect. And I know that because I'm not perfect. So these things, these discontentments, these nitpickiness, these, all of these emotions, we've got to just deal with them together as family, or we've got to deal with them later uh, with new people who are strangers. We had this couple uh, that I pastored for a few years. They, he is the only person in 20 years of preaching who's ever interrupted me in the middle of a sermon to tell me I was wrong. He was 15 years older than me. Guys in the church were like, why didn't you tell him to shut up? And I said... I thought about it, but that doesn't sound good on the recording, so you should have told him to shut up. And they were like, well, next time I'm going to tell him to shut up. I was like, thank you. I'm going to count on you for that, right? This, every Sunday, he would tell me something I did wrong. And then they left our church and went to another church. And then I kept in touch with him. We'd occasionally get together because I loved the guy. I wanted to pastor him. And they left that church because of something else similar, Right? And so finally ends up this third church and we get lunch one day and I said, man, how are you? How do you like that new church? He goes, well, we don't like this and we don't like that. He said, but you know what? After going to six churches, we realized that none of them were perfect and we began to see that the thing that was bad was us. We were just angry and negative. So we learned to be quiet and become good church members and understand that if every place has a problem and we're the one common denominator, maybe the issue is us. Man, that was powerful. Rather than continue to walk away and go to another church, they began to address the issue together. And then lastly, in, in this sort of not giving the benefit of the doubt where we live in, observe the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. Man, whatever we would want somebody else to do for us, we need to do the same thing for them. It's the way of the gospel. We would never dare ask God to put skin on and come die for our sins. And yet, that's what he did for us. And so we can extend grace, giving the benefit of the doubt that the holidays and in church and in marriage and in work comes more easily as we walk with Jesus. Get to know Jesus, get to know his heart and become like Jesus. I have a friend, Rachel. She mimics accents. If she, she doesn't mean to do it, it just happens. It's uh, Rachel uh, Mark. Uh, Rachel at CRC, yeah. So she could be hanging out with an Australian person, and she doesn't even mean to do it, but she would be like, good day, mate. Like, I mean, like, it just intuitively sort of flows out of her. She could hang out, she'll hang out with Natalie and start saying y'all, or like wanting sweet tea or whatever. Like, this is how her brain works. There's something in there. The more we walk with Jesus and spend time with Jesus, the more we get his heart. And his heart is agape and laying down his life. And so if we need that heart, that giving the benefit of the doubt, we ought to just get before Jesus and spend time with him. Jesus loved us when we were quite unlovable and forgave us so much. He died for the one who bugs you so much and offends you completely. That one, that most offensive person in your life who it's so hard for you to give the benefit of the doubt to, 
If they were the only person to ever be born and they sinned one time, he would still come and die just for them. He loves them. Christ wants you, therefore, to be a minister of reconciliation, one who fixes the broken things. Jesus will love through you. There's been times in my life where I've thought, I can't love that person. I can't love my dad. I can't love that person who embarrassed me. Man, I can't love that person who always criticizes me, who interrupts my sermon to tell me something so stupid I couldn't believe he interrupted me and he shared some heretical idea that wasn't biblical. I can't love him. And you know what God says in that moment? I know you can't. I know you can't. But I can. So if you will let me, I will love them through you. And that has truth in it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things and we can only do that we are incapable of it unless God loves through us let me pray for us and then we'll receive communion